and a family in our church very graciously allowed me to spend the summer with them. Uh, the husband's name was Bud, and the wife's name was Kathy. They had three little girls, probably ages four to nine. I grew up with all brothers. It was a learning experience all around for me. They were a very gracious host home for the summer I spent with them. But they were a home where uh, they said, anytime you're here for supper, just eat with us. And if you're gone out with the youth or doing something, we'll understand you're not going to be here to eat. But if you're here, you're welcome to eat with us. What that usually meant for them was somebody would pick something up on the way home. Uh, It might be they ran through McDonald's and it was McDonald's, or it could be they called in something from Olive Garden or Red Lobster. I mean, you just never knew. But if you picture a home where every meal comes from, like, Pioneer Woman Cookbook, this would be the other end of the scale. My last Saturday there, the girls asked their mom if she would do pancakes for us. A Saturday morning pancake breakfast, Doug's leaving. And she was gracious and did. When we got ready to eat, Kathy was over on the griddle just making up pancakes, and we were grabbing them, and we sat down to eat. And I sat down next to Bud and the girls, and she had loaded me up, I mean, a huge stack of pancakes. And when I cut into them, the batter just ran out. I don't even think it was warm. I'm trying to decide what to do, and I look over at Bud, and he's looking at me just smiling. Like that, you know, when guys' eyes meet, and you know that he knew he should have told you. Like, there's supposed to be some man code that we look out for each other and we don't let another man just walk into a train wreck. And I look at his plate and he has one pancake. And I was like, you knew. And he said, enjoy. And I'm, I'm like, he has one, I have four pancakes to drink. And so I, t- I tell him, I said, tell her. And he said, you tell her. And I said, you're her husband. And he said, exactly. (laughs) Two cowards at the breakfast table that morning. Two cowards. And because there were two cowards there, three little girls grew up confused about what's required to be a pancake. Because when it's still in the bowl, you don't call it a pancake, it's just batter. And until it gets solid, you don't call it a pancake. There are certain expectations or requirements that have to be met before you call it a pancake. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is going to clear up some confusion about what the expectations are or what the requirements are to be called one of his followers. There are some basic requirements. And Jesus is no coward. He's willing to have the conversation. He's willing to have a difficult, honest conversation in Mark chapter 8 about what is needed to be a follower of Christ. So would you read with me in Mark chapter 8, we're going to start with verse 27. 
And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus and his disciples have gone to Caesarea Philippi. That's about 25 miles north of Bethsaida, which is where they have been right before this. Caesarea Philippi is the furthest point north you can be and still be technically in Israel. They are right on the edge of leaving Israel. It has become a Gentile city. It's a very pagan city. And Jesus goes up there for some time with his disciples, some teaching time with his disciples, away from the huge crowds, the crowds of five and 10,000 people down in more the Jewish part of Israel. And I believe in this conversation that's actually recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's so important, all of the Gospels, those synoptic Gospels, all include this. Matthew's is the much longer and much more detailed account of this conversation. It's such an important conversation that after Peter makes this great confession, and in Matthew he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Christ says, upon this rock I'll build my church. This is Jesus' first conversation with the disciples about the church. And I want to highlight just from Mark's account of it, what I think are five expectations or five requirements that Jesus has for people to be his followers. They are not all equally important. One of them rises above all the others. But first, out of this conversation Jesus has in Caesarea Philippi, number one, he expects a correct understanding of the culture. A correct understanding of the culture. Look at verse 27 and 28 again. Jesus went with his disciples. They're in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? 
And they said, hey, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others, maybe Jeremiah, some of the other prophets. Jesus already knows what the crowds are saying about him, right? I mean, Jesus knows all things. So he already knows the answer to this question. He knows what the crowds are saying. But he wants to have this discussion with his disciples. He wants them to say what the crowds are saying. He expects that his disciples know. He assumes that they're informed about what people outside of their little group of 12 are thinking. He would expect us to know what people outside of our group are thinking. He assumes they know. He assumes they're hearing. He assumes they're not blind to what people who aren't Christians are saying. By the way, the crowd was wrong. The crowd was wrong about Christ. Some said he's John the Baptist. John the Baptist would have had to return from the dead. He's already been killed by the time we get to Mark chapter 8. Because of his strong convictions and what he said about marriage and adultery, they beheaded John the Baptist. And some are saying, hey, this is John the Baptist come back. Others, say, or others were saying Jesus must be Elijah, one of the most famous Old Testament prophets that the book of Malachi actually mentions in connection with the coming of the Savior. And others say, no, he was just one of the other Old Testament heroes, godly men, prophets. All of those answers represent respected men of God, very respected men of God. And all of those answers were very insufficient. You can have a very high view of Jesus and it not be high enough, right? You can have a very high view of Jesus and still come up terribly short. But what amazes me is that Jesus expects these men who have the right answer about who Jesus is to understand what the people are saying who have the wrong answer about who he is. It's not enough just to have the right answer. You ought to have some general idea of what the wrong answers are. It's not as if one of the 12 disciples started this conversation and said, this is, not, this is not what happened. One of the 12 starts the conversation and says, hey, Jesus, do you know what people are saying about you? And Jesus says, hey, what are you doing even listening to them? That's not what happened. Jesus assumes they're listening. He assumes they know. I think we do need to have a somewhat clear understanding of what our culture gets wrong. I don't think this is a requirement for being a follower of Christ. I think it's just one of his expectations. He expects that they know. It would be helpful to know what the world wrongly believes about Jesus. It would be helpful for us to know what the world wrongly believes about God. It would be helpful for us to know what the world wrongly believes about the Bible. If you're living in and trying to minister to Muslims, it would be good to know what they wrongly believe about Jesus. If you're living in the Bible Belt, or what used to be the Bible Belt of Oklahoma, Texas, it would be good to know what people wrongly believe about Jesus. And if you're in the first century and you're surrounded by Jews who all have a wrong view of Jesus, it would be helpful to know what those wrong views are. And Jesus assumes they know. Jesus gives us another little insight into the culture. Just if you look at verse 38, 
He says, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, he's giving them another little tidbit about the world in which they live. Church, please don't lose, fact, lose, lose sight of the fact that you live in a very dark, unfaithful, adulterous, sinful generation. We are to be light because the darkness is really dark. So he's wanting them to know this is where you live, and I'd like to know what you guys are hearing from where you live. We see this other places in the New Testament. Paul left Titus on the island of Crete. You remember that? He left one of his co-workers on the island of Crete to help strengthen those churches. And when Paul writes back to Titus in the New Testament book of Titus in chapter 1, Paul quotes pagan authors from Crete because he understands the culture of Crete. When Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 17 in Athens, he quotes lost Greek authors that his audience would know because he's speaking to them. He understands where he lives. He understands where these people live. Maybe my favorite Old Testament example in 1 Chronicles 12, it says the men of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. They understood the times. Now, I realize, church, we could overdo this first one. We could overdo it to the neglect of other things. We can't spend all our time studying and understanding the culture, even the things they get wrong. We could overdo that to the neglect of other things that we should give our time to. But I do think it's helpful, and Jesus expects that we would have some grasp on that. Number two, and infinitely more important, Jesus requires a correct understanding of the Savior. After asking in verses 27 and 28, what does the world get wrong in their view of the Son of Man, of Christ? He asked them, verse 29, but what do you guys say? Thank you for telling me what the world says, John the Baptist, Elijah, and other prophets, but what about you twelve? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Infinitely more important. He requires that his people get his identity right. We have to have a correct understanding of the Savior. This is the most important question you will ever answer. Everybody has to answer this question individually. You can't answer it as a family. You can't answer it just let your parents, I'll just take their default answer. You have to answer this question individually. Who do you say Jesus is? Your relationship with God and your eternity ride on your answer to this question. Every other question on the exam will not matter compared to this one. Who do you say Jesus is? Peter says, you are the Christ. In Matthew's longer version, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter could not have ascribed to Jesus a higher value than that. There's nothing he could say that would have put Jesus any higher than that. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. Peter believed that Jesus was the promised, long-awaited deliverer that the whole Old Testament had been pointing toward. 
to say that Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets, to get it wrong the way the crowd got it wrong, is to say, now watch this, all of those men valued, godly, great prophets, all of them, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, the other prophets, all of them were just preparing the road for the one who was to come. They were just pavers, prophet pavers, who were preparing the road. If you put Jesus in the group with them, he's just another preparer. He's just preparatory. And Peter's like, he doesn't go in that group with those who are just building the road. He's the one the road is for. He's the one that's coming. He's the promised one. Nobody's coming after him. Nobody's needed after him. Once he gets here, we have all we need. Don't put him in the group with the people who are just preparing the road. He's the end. As a matter of fact, he actually said, I am the road. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Don't put him in a group with just a bunch of great godly prophets. That's not where he goes. Jesus is the answer, the hope of the world. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Christ is not his name. When Peter says, you are the Christ, please know, and I, I'm sure you know this, that is not his name. His name is Jesus. The angel said at his birth, you will call his name Jesus. His name is Jesus. Christ is his title that has to do with what he's here to accomplish. He's the Christ who's going to take away the sins of the world. Peter has just acknowledged that Jesus is divine and holy and anointed and the promised Savior of the world. It is the highest shelf Peter could have put him on. He's up there alone. So I think in talking about, ultimately, in John's pass, in, in Matthew's passage, in describing this, these people as the church, he's going to build his church on these truths, he would like for his church or his people or his followers to have a correct understanding of the culture they live in, but infinitely more important, a correct understanding of who Christ is. Church, we have to get Christ right. If you don't, you're not a church. It's just that simple. And if you don't get the identity of Christ right individually, you're not a follower of Christ. Number three, I think this conversation highlights that he expects us to have a correct understanding of the plan. The culture, the Savior, and third, the plan. Look at verse 30. After Peter makes his great confession, you are the Christ, verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one. Isn't that a strange verse? I mean, does that jump out to you at all? Peter gets the most important question in the world right. And then Jesus says, hey, nobody knows. I mean, I want absolute silence on this. Button it up. And it's very strong language. He strictly charges them. I don't want one word of this leaking out. But I just got the answer right. You are the Christ. Right. Don't tell it. This is like anti-evangelism. Why would he say that? Why would he say, don't tell anybody right now? Well, look at the next, at verse 31, after telling them not to tell anyone, we know why. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. 
and he said that to them plainly. Peter, you got the answer to the question right, and I don't want you telling anybody because a Christ without the cross is an incomplete message. Until the cross is part of the message, the crowd is just going to be confused about what the Christ is about. Until we get the cross right, until we get the plan right, it's just going to confuse the people. You guys got the person right, but nobody understands the plan yet. And until we can lay the cross alongside the Christ, we're not going to tell people about the Christ. Because you can't understand him apart from the cross. So, it says he began to teach them. And by the way, church, this was a long process. They didn't get it with the first lesson. He had to keep telling them over and over and over again. Hey, you got the person right, but you don't have the plan right yet. You got the person right, I am the Christ, but the plan includes the cross. And if the cross isn't in focus, Christ isn't in focus. Because you'll think the Christ is here to do something else, and he's here to die. And nobody got that, even these 12. I mean, as you read through the rest of the Gospels after he begins to teach them this, they still don't get it. Part of being God's people is that we understand the culture, we understand the Savior, but we also understand the plan. And it was so hard for these people to get the plan. They had a wrong view of the Christ. They thought he would be political. They thought he might be military. They thought he would be economic. They thought he would be earthly, an earthly king. And they were lining up all of these things they thought the Jewish Messiah would do. And Jesus is like, I'm not earthly. I'm not military. I'm not political. I'm not economic. I'm here to be a theological, spiritual, real Christ. But without the cross, nobody's going to get it. Nobody's going to have a right view of the, of the Christ. So he begins to teach them. And one of the most amazing things, this had to be shocking to them as he explains the plan, is that he's going to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Those are the religious leaders of the day. He's like, listen, part of the plan includes everybody that is looked up to spiritually, they're all going to reject me. They don't get the plan either. Nobody gets the plan from the top down. And the disciples are, are beginning to try to process this. The gospel message, church, is about faith in the right person and his cross and his empty tomb. And all of those ingredients aren't there yet because the cross hasn't happened and the empty tomb hasn't happened. And so if we start preaching a Christ without the cross and the empty tomb, it's just going to mess people up. So he says, hold off on that. Once we can lay the cross alongside the Christ, we'll tell everybody. We'll tell everybody, but it's just going to mess them up right now. So he strictly charges them, don't tell anybody because the plan isn't there yet. Well, I mean, the plan's there, it just hasn't happened yet. In fact, the 12 are still so confused about the plan that if you look at verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, you have the plan 
dead wrong. You have the plan dead wrong. You're not going to Jerusalem to be rejected and suffer many things and die. You're, you're crazy. And let me set you straight. That leads us to the fourth characteristic of God's people. They have a correct understanding of the enemy. Because he has to tell Peter, why don't you just get behind me, Satan? Satan. How do you go from speaking for God, you are the Christ, to speaking for Satan in two inches? How do you do that? You have to have a misunderstanding of the plan. Satan always opposes God's plan, no matter what it is. He has always and will always oppose God's plan. If the plan is the cross, Satan opposes the cross. If Peter is trying to eliminate the cross from Jesus' future, then he's agreeing with Satan. Peter, your plan sounds just like the enemy's plan, so I need you to get out of my way. Yes, we should understand the culture. Yes, we must have a right understanding of the Savior and his identity. We should have a right understanding of the plan, but we also should have a keen understanding of the enemy. He is still active. He would love for you to speak for him. He would love for you to buy into his plan rather than the Father's plan. Do you remember Jesus' three temptations early in his life? One of them was Satan took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and said, if you'll just bow before me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. You can have the glory without the cross. You can have all the glory right now. Skip the cross. All these kingdoms are yours. Just sin real quick, bow down, worship me, and I'll give you all of this. You can have the glory without the cross. And Jesus is not buying any of it. He says the cross is the plan. My father and I agree the cross is the plan. Jesus, maybe almost every day for the rest of his time with these disciples, may have had to keep reiterating the plan because they couldn't get it. They're so sure it's not the plan, this Peter, still the night before Christ is crucified, draws a sword and tries to kill a man to stop the plan rather than submit to the plan. The plan is the cross. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer many things. What all did he suffer? Well, a a trial that was a joke, lies about him, false accusations, people making up stuff, a beating, the humiliation of crucifixion, the weight of our sin put on him. I mean, he suffered many things, not just one or two things. And I'm going to be rejected by the people who should embrace me. He suffered many things from those who should have recognized his identity correctly, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees. You know, we all, um, we all have a problem with pride. Can, can we be humble enough to admit that that is our problem? We have a problem with pride. And I, I've wondered sometimes if Peter ever in the years to come, because men are like this, not only are we cowards and we won't step up about pancakes, we're also proud, And I wonder if if Peter 
when he was gathered around with the other disciples, ever said, um, just reliving that great moment, if he ever said, hey, guys, you remember when I nailed it? <laughs> remember when Jesus asked, hey, who am I? And I, like, I like threaded the needle. I said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember, like, remember when I nailed it, guys? I, I wonder if the other disciples ever said that. Help me out. Was that before or after you spoke for Satan? I can't remember. Was that before or after you spoke for Satan? Because that's what we are. We'll have a day where we nail it, and then we fall again. And we'll have a day where we walk with God, and we're pleasing to him, and then we fall again. The plan is, I'll die on the cross, because you need help on your best days, and you need help on your worst days, because on our best days, we still need this Christ and this cross, don't we? Even on our best days. Correct understanding of the culture, what are they getting wrong? Infinitely more important, a correct understanding of the Savior, get his identity right. Correct understanding of the plan, it must include the cross. And a correct understanding of the enemy, he would like all of us to move to a different plan than God's. Finally, fifth, a correct understanding of the offer. To be God's people, we need to have a correct understanding of the offer. That shows up in verse 34. Jesus called the crowd together along with his disciples, and here's the offer. Here's the invitation. Do any of you want to come after me? Anybody? Anybody? It can be anybody. It's not just men. It's not just women. It's not just Jews. It's not just Gentiles. Does anybody, young or old, rich or poor, if anybody would like to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the offer. There's probably lots of churches today offering a different invitation than that. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but if you're willing to lose your life for my sake and for the gospel, you'll save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then forfeit his soul? The offer is not come to Christ and get everything you ever wanted. Because what we want, we want our own dreams and our own comfort and our own freedom. That pretty well sums up what we would like apart from Christ. I would like my own dreams, my own comfort, and my own freedom. You give me that, and I'm a happy man. And then I look at the three things Jesus makes clear in his offer. Rather than my own dreams, he says, you'll need to deny yourself. That's the opposite of my own dreams. Deny yourself. My dreams are no longer the priority. When I become a follower of Christ, I'm denying myself. Notice he doesn't just say deny your sins. We are supposed to deny our sins. This goes beyond that. This is denying yourself. Rather than my own comfort, he says, take up your cross. That doesn't sound like comfort. Comfort's no longer the priority for a follower of Christ. You take up your cross. It's interesting because we have trouble thinking this way. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet when he said, take up your cross. So they weren't even thinking of Jesus dying on the cross yet because they hadn't totally bought into that plan. They didn't see that yet. So when they heard, take up your cross, they didn't see Jesus or like a beautiful cross like we have behind me. 
All they thought of were criminals. All they thought of when they heard take up their cross, listen, every town that had ever had someone take up their cross, when they went out of town carrying their cross, they never came back. They never came back. Taking up your cross meant permanence. Taking up your cross meant I'll pay the price. Taking up your cross meant death. For some of us, taking up your cross may not actually mean physical death for Christ, but it may, it may very well mean persecution. It may very well mean suffering. So rather than my own dreams, I deny myself. Rather than my own comfort, I take up my cross. And rather than my own freedom, he says, follow me. You no longer get to go anywhere you want to go. You go where I go. You follow me. Yeah, but I, I want to have the freedom to go over here. Yeah, but if I don't go over there, you don't go over there, Doug because you're following me. That means uh, you don't have freedom. You follow me. Step for step, you follow me. I remember um, in basketball in high school, we were, we were playing a team that had um, a player that was by far the best player on their team, and our coach picked our best defensive player, which was not me, <laughs> and said, I want you to stay within two feet of him period. You follow him. When his coach pulls him off for a break, I'll pull you off for a break. Otherwise, if he goes and stands in the corner of the court, that's where you go. He said, I want you guarding him from the moment he gets off the bus. You just, you're just on him. Jesus says, hey, this is no longer about your freedom. If I go here, you go here. And if I don't go there, you don't go there ever because you follow me. All of a sudden, it's not about my dreams, my comfort, and my freedom. Here's the offer. We've got to understand the offer right. The offer is, do you see in Jesus such a treasure that you would rather have him than your own dreams, your own comfort, and your own freedom? He looks better than that. He's such a treasure that you would choose him over those things. Because Jesus says, if anybody wants to come after me, that's the offer. Jesus told a parable along these same lines. He said, um, a man found a treasure in a field, and it was such a treasure, he went and sold all he had and bought the field because he loved the treasure. Do you treasure Christ that much? He follows it up. Let me just end here. Excuse me. Let me just end here. In verse 36, He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then forfeit his soul? The offer is, would you want to follow Christ and have your whole value system changed? Your whole value system has changed. Because you'd rather have him than gain the whole world. Because you realize it would be a really bad business deal for you if you gained the whole world but you got the question, who is Jesus, wrong? And because of that, it cost you your soul. Even if you gained the whole world, that would be a bad trade. Because you treasure him more than the whole world. And church, that, I admit, that's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around. So let me shrink it down just a little bit. What if you could gain all of Oklahoma? I mean, you personally, you gain all of Oklahoma. Literally every acre in Oklahoma 
is personally yours. Not just the surface, you own the mineral rights. Every acre in Oklahoma. You gained all of Oklahoma. You own every car in Oklahoma. I mean, every car dealership you go by, you own every car because it's in Oklahoma and you gained all of Oklahoma. You own every home in Oklahoma. You own every lake house in Oklahoma. You own it all. I mean, if you and I go to lunch today after church, you better buy because you own the restaurant. I mean, you own it all. Now, you multiply that times the whole world. You gained the whole world, and you missed Christ, and you made a bad choice. Our value systems change. We look at the offer. The offer of salvation is a free gift. What Christ did on the cross, the plan makes it a free gift. But do you value the person so much that you say, I'd rather have him than everything else? My own comfort, my own freedom, my own dreams. Christ is a treasure better than all of those. And that's the offer he makes. And if you get Jesus wrong, you made a poor trade, no matter what else you get. So Jesus pulls his disciples aside in Caesarea Philippi, and he says, hey, I want to have this conversation with you. And out of that conversation comes these things that are required, some of them absolutely required, and others just expected of his people. And I think it paints a really good picture of what he's wanting from his followers. And as I said, the Matthew passage that covers this same conversation, much fuller, much longer, thought about trying to preach on it and realized it's probably a three-part sermon series because it is packed so full. But in that one, when he says, Based on these truths, I'm going to build my church. I love the song Larry had to sing right before I got up here. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ the Lord. Isn't that what this passage is saying? We just sang it. Hey, you get me right, you can be a church. You get me wrong, you cannot be the people of God. And along with that, make sure you get the gospel right. That's the plan. Make sure you realize there's an enemy it's a liar and a thief and a destroyer from the beginning. Make sure you get the culture right, because we're trying to minister to this culture to understand what it misunderstands is helpful. And make sure you get the offer right. We're not cheapening the offer. This is the offer. We want to keep making this offer in love, in grace. Christ did it all, so this offer is actually a good deal. He is the greatest treasure you'll ever have. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, you're not a believer, he's making you that offer. Come, get the person of Christ right. He is the Savior. He does love you. He did follow through with the plan, no matter how difficult it was. He went all the way to the cross and an empty tomb for you. And this morning, you could visit with our pastor, or you could visit with me, or someone else here that you know is a follower of Christ, and say, I, I would like to become what this passage is talking about. I want to treasure Christ that much. If you are a believer, would you think through these five things during our last song and just say, God, am I living up to these expectations for you? If I'm not, would you help me? Would you help me be this kind of follower of Christ? 
But during the song, if you'd like to visit with somebody, we would love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you if you have something. If it's just a time for you and the Lord during this song, that's right. But don't leave here not knowing Christ as your Savior. Father, I do thank you for this passage. I thank you that based on the truths in this passage, you are going to build a church, and we are that church. We're part of that church. I thank you that the church truly is the most valuable people on earth. The value of something, God, is determined by what someone's willing to pay for it. And I look out at these people this morning and realize you, who've never made a bad assessment, you decided the church was worth an infinite price. It was worth your son. God, would you remind your people today of what they're worth, that they are the most valuable thing on earth. And help us be the faithful people of God. And it is in your son's name, who I pray we always get his identity right. Amen.